Thank you, Chad. Uh, what a gracious welcome. Roll humps is the Campbell saying, but it doesn't feel right to say roll horns for the Blue Devils. You know, uh, but <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thrill to be with you. You all, I already know, are a contemplative and prophetic congregation. And I have been so interested over the course of the last few months to get better acquainted with you all uh, through Chad and Jennifer and Ben and also for my own visit. Um, I'm really glad to spend this time with you. To begin then, let's hear, from, hear the gospel from Luke 9. Ben hears this, this being his second service today. He's been at St. Mary's this morning, and today is his, his second service. Let's hear the gospel from Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen. To him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Southern writer Flannery O'Connor started raising chickens when she was just five years old. But her penchant for beaks and feathers didn't stop there. In fact, one day after reading an ad for a peacock, peahen, and four peabitties, she turned to her mother and her lifelong housemate and said, I'm going to order me those. And ordered them she did. What started from one crate of birds at the beginning eventually morphed into no fewer than 40 peafowl at the height of her career. Nearly all of O'Connor's house guests quickly noticed these birds, but never were they more fully seen than they were the day that one of them sauntered out in front of a car on the way to O'Connor's farm. The driver of the car was an aging, white-haired man with five or six grandkids in tow. And he'd come to buy a calf when a peacock came over to their car to check them out. I'll let O'Connor tell the story. Catching sight of the peacock, they stopped in their tracks and stared, plainly hacked to find this superior creature blocking their path. There was a silence as the bird regarded them, his head drawn back at its most majestic angle, his folded train glittering behind him in the sunlight. What is that thing? One of the small boys asked, 
finally in a sullen voice. Now I have a thick accent, but that's that's not that I I put that on. That's that's in that's in the in the in the essay. I can show you. Uh, the old man got out of the car and was gazing at the peacock with an astounded look of recognition. I ain't seen one of them since my granddaddy's day, he said, respectfully removing his hat. Folks used to have them, but they don't no more. What is it? The child asked again in the same tone he used before. Turin, the old man said, that's the king of the birds. Do you remember seeing anything like this? An experience so marvelous that it catches your breath and blows your hat off your head? Reading this family's experience with the peacock reminds me of Luke's story of the transfiguration. Of course, the folks in O'Connor's essay would never have seen the king of the birds if his feathered majesty had not wandered out in front of them. And likewise, in Luke, it's Jesus who takes the initiative to invite Peter, James, and John into his mountaintop prayer. And it's the Father who, once they finally get there, chooses to shine God's pleasure onto Jesus' face. But they would never have seen this if Jesus hadn't walked right out in front of them eight whole days after his last sermon and called them up to pray. But the words he uses to call them are not what compel them to go as not a word of his invitation is recorded. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, Luke says, and that's all we have. So there must be something deeper than mere words that pulls them up the mountain. These three friends are moved to be with the one who is opening for them the mysteries of heaven. These three friends are compelled by beauty. To be clear, when I say beauty, I'm reaching for something the beyond, the glow that shines on Christmas gifts in December, or the sharp consistency of a, of a lawn cut in the summertime. These things are pretty and enjoyable, but I would be hard-pressed to call them beautiful, and much less transfigured. No, beauty is what causes us to transcend ourselves, to get beyond our own limits and glimpse something far greater. It's what helps us escape the illusion that we are alone and self-sufficient because we're not. It's beauty that, when transfigured, lights up creation to show us what God's good world really is. And it shows us that we're part of that world, not apart from it. Beauty is what these disciples see when they go see Jesus pray and open their eyes to watch him glow. They're watching heaven as it touches the earth. This time last year, I decided to chase beauty up the mountains, too. It was the bright, dazzling foliage that we see even now that so held my attention in the waning days of autumn, quietly calling me up Town Mountain Road onto the parkway. You all know the route well. I finally decided early one morning to go, just as soon as I left work. As I walked out of the house to get in my car, I grabbed my prayer book on a whim and mused to myself that there would be no better place to pray evening prayer than an overlook in the fall. And what, when I finally started that prayer in, that, in the crisp air, was the opening psalm. O Lord, who shall dwell in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy 
hill. The psalmist asks a question, and she answers it with a criteria of devotion and discipleship. For the psalmist, the holy hill of the Lord isn't easily accessed, but she still wants to find her way. What if that desire is what frames her search for transcendence, for the beauty that is God? And if that's the case, then the journey toward God, as challenging as it surely is, must be nothing short of delightful, ablaze with color. So what if the way of holiness is dazzled by its light rather than its law? And what if we find it's actually accessible because it's actually beautiful? But this, unfortunately, is not what we're often taught. As a high school student, I remember reading a particularly awful sermon where the preacher said, I dreamt and thought that life was beauty. I woke and found that life was a duty. Trash. Think about Luke's transfiguration story we just heard. Master, it is good for us to be here, Peter said, not it's our duty to be here. Duty alone can't even keep someone awake during their prayers. John noticed this in Gethsemane. But Luke seems to think that beauty can. Peter calls Jesus master out of this experience of seeing him shine. With Jesus, Peter is bearing witness to a gospel that happens to be worth his life. From Luke's perspective, Jesus, the master, is most fully himself when he prays. He's so fully himself that this time, at least, he even glows. Even his robe shines with the very color of joy, Luke Timothy Johnson observes, and it's the same dazzling white that the angels later spread across their wings by the garden tomb. Jesus glows with joy because he is fully alive. From the perspective of his three friends, he has been transfigured. The word transfigured, though, never enters Luke's vocabulary. It's not, it's not here, and, and, but it is in Matthew and Mark. And John, as you likely already have heard, has no transfiguration account because the whole gospel is transfigured. At least that's what Michael Ramsey said. But even without the word... Luke's account still has a marvelous definition of transfiguration. Just before the verses that make up our gospel reading is Jesus' promise that there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. It is to watch heaven touch the earth. That's what it is to see transfiguration. That's what it is to see the kingdom of God. It's to see just how thin the boundary is in Jesus between heaven and earth. And this is what we pray for every time we fold our hands and pray thee, our Father. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Transfiguration is God's answer to that prayer flashing to all who will see a preview of resurrection by showing a world lit up by grace. Think of O'Connor's peacock. In the end, the king of the birds is still just a chicken. She's, she says so much in her letter. And you can go back and read that, but it's proud colors and it's posture. Help us respect it for what it is. He takes off his hat because he sees a creature of glory that radiates the beauty of its maker. And this is how God sees the whole world. Only what we see in a flash is what God has always seen.
Perhaps of all the church does, Holy Communion most reveals the power of transfiguration. It's the offering up of meager, cheap resources so that they can become for us the food of our sanctification. And we could talk about what happens at communion, what, the, what are the theological dynamics at play here at another time. But I think it's safe to say that transfiguration is our starting point because it shows God's love for the world, everything, bread, wine, water, us, even while telling God's heaven-bent determination to make these same things the resources of our conversion. But what does communion on Sunday's altar have to do with the quiet of a Thursday afternoon? Well, what happens here at this table is in fact different than the experiences that we may have this week on the parkway, at a concert, or on a beach in the summertime, or at the movies. But they're far from being unrelated. It's different because in only one of these do we, do, do we receive Christ's very body into ours, but in, it's in all of them that we find that exact same light shining across our faces. And so what if, in addition to being the food for our souls, the Eucharist is our teacher, our guide to show us what dazzles our days? Maybe this is what St. Benedict, the founder of monastic life, was learning when he encouraged his monks to handle their supper dishes like implements of the altar. A worldview like that conjures a life lived right side up. It shows us how to handle a bag of donated food or ice cream at the prison like a golden cross at Easter. It guides us to fold the disabled adult's mealtime shirt cover like a clergy robe. And it presses us to see a rolling school bus like the Ark of the Covenant in its Exodus procession. I'm talking about the sanctification of our daily lives because, as Isaiah tells us, heaven and earth are full of God's glory. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is outside of the reach of God's light. God is actively looking for whatever direction God can reach you, and we'll take it. As many of you know, and as Chad already mentioned, I work in special education for Buncombe County Schools. Two years ago, I was supporting a young, a young man who was fixated on a rhyme that his grandmother taught him, and it's one we all know. Complete with hand motions, he would say, here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, and there's the people. There was something about the way he said people that carried such musicality to me. I, being a Barbara Streisand devotee, taught him the song People from Funny Girl because that's what went through my head. Uh, <laughs> And th though I sang most of the verses, it was the chorus that he remembered day after day. And so as soon as he finished his rhyme and figuring out where the door is and where the people are, he'd sing with me, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. What happened the first time we sang that, I won't forget. Even in our duet, I heard in my mind, loud and clear, the sound of my parish church singing what we sing every Sunday in front of the altar. And Ben got to sing this today, too. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. 
Hosanna in the highest. It would take days for me to figure out what was happening, why that was ringing through my head, bells and incense and all. That is, in singing a song about people needing people with a disabled child, a song that I would say also works as a kind of hymn about the Incarnation, is showing me what it's like to see the kingdom of God. God was entering the hours of my regular weekday afternoon, making use of my setting, my people, my music, and my heart by touching it all with light from heaven, transfiguring even my own body. The mouth through which I receive the bread becomes the mouth I use to sing with my student, and the hands wherein that bread is laid becomes the instrument of his communication. And all of this, music, song, hand motion, bodies, voices, told the wonder of the gospel to him, but it rang it out loud and clear to me. We all have moments like this to one degree or another, experiences of beauty that, without a word like transfigure, might seem outsized for our everyday lives. But they're not outsized. Outsized, they fit just right. How many among, of us, among us know what it's like to fall in love? But how many of us know that God is finding us in that experience? Think of what it means to see the sunshine across your beloved's face, even though it's dark and stormy. The sun shines across them because you see them for who they are. It's to transcend yourself by loving someone else. Again, pardon me, I'm thinking of another Streisand tune which says, He touched me and the world is alive and shining. I'm aware I've quoted her twice in like five minutes, but, the, but, 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 but there's, there's, that's part of my point, that God enters my life, my orbit, and my, what I'm thinking and hearing and everything. God is looking through it, my playlist, my library, my car, my friends, all of this, and that God is doing the same thing for all of us. And so Victor Hugo's right. To love another person is to see the face of God. However we find it, in love, in music, in work, church, or whatever, to live in the wake of transfiguration is to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, which is to experience inwardly the unseen work of God. It's the divine process that causes our spirits to ripen. And some of you will remember that the experience of being overshadowed first happens in Luke by one other person, and it's Mary. As the Son of God is conceived and carried to term in her transfigured womb. She's the, she's the, uh, the preview of this text. Well, what happens to Mary is meant for all of us. Mary was never the same after the Annunciation. She became then what she was created to be from the beginning, the mother of God. And so Peter, James, and John were never the same either. They let themselves be changed by the glory they saw. Of course, as surely as one can witness transfiguration, one can also miss it. In O'Connor's Peacock essay, she remembers a telephone repairman who comes to work at her farm. The man is enamored with the bird, and he tries to persuade one of her peacocks uh, to, to strut across the yard. But the bird is unimpressed with this pomposity, causing the increasingly impatient telephone man to ask, what ails him? 
To this, O'Connor replies, nothing ails him. He'll put it up directly. All you have to do is wait. The man waits perhaps 15 minutes, then gets in his truck to leave. But just as he starts off down the road, up goes the bird's tail. He's doing it, O'Connor screamed out. He's doing it. And he screams this until he turns around to watch. And when the bird sets down his tail, after a long strut, O'Connor asks the man, Well, what do you think of that? Unsatisfied, the man replied, Never saw such long, ugly legs. I bet that rascal could outrun a bus. The man sees the glory of it all. He sees the bird. But he misses it at the same time. He can't sit with the mystery long enough for the glory to unfold, so his presence to the world simply falls dormant. It's as if, wide-eyed, he sleeps through the transfiguration, and he misses the grace. But to those who do stay awake and are present to the world, the Father gives a command. This is my Son, my chosen. Listen to him. Luke's transfiguration story draws us into the prayer life of Jesus. What we hear from the cloud is what Jesus alone heard at his baptism. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. What was once Jesus' solitary experience follows everywhere. And it's meant to teach us how to pray our days. How to embrace the radiant, trustworthy moments that God uses to dazzle our lives by listening to Jesus as he speaks through the joy of our own enchantment. And what's more is that God's never done with these experiences. They don't expire like milk in a jug. No, when it comes to the real-life episodes that imprint us that deeply, our resolve can't be to shelve them and just forget about them, but to see them and use them and pray with them as regular points of entry into wonder. But like the sunscreen we wore last month, a warning is due. Repeated exposure to heaven's light only transfigures more of the life where it shines. To listen to Jesus is to hear and remember the revelation he's dawned already, but it's also to follow where the cloud of glory is breaking today. It will cost something, but be not afraid, because grace sustains this exposure. It will prepare each of us to see what God has been staging in silence, waiting and waiting ever since we were overshadowed. But the warning is still not yet fully sounded, is it? Luke's story seems to confirm what the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote a century ago, that in the presence of beauty, we must change our lives. Praying through the experience of transfiguration will alter our paths, just as Jesus in somber conversation with Moses and Elijah would be the first to tell us. But in God's good time, it will not be our individual lives only that will change. We, after all, are not alone in watching heaven touch the earth. Though in countless individual ways, we, the people of God all over the world, share this same experience. Together, 
Just like Peter, James, and John, we glimpse the prism of God's radiance. And that may be because it takes a community to see the world in God's light. Because it takes the band of disciples to catch what God is doing in the whole world. And these are things that the rest of us might be tempted to sleep through and miss it. Whether at the movies, in the park, at a museum, in church, on a date. Together, we see the train of God's robes is always being unfurled at our feet. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and every single time it happens, we can respectfully remove our hats and say to our sibling in Christ, friend, that is the king of the kings. Let us pray. Open, O Lord, the eyes of your servants gathered in this good space. Stir us awake, Holy Spirit. Remove from our minds the barricades that hold us from recognizing your face in the world. Show us your radiance and teach us to listen. We make our prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.